Good morning, Redeemer Midland. It is such a privilege to be with you guys um, from your brothers and sisters. And Redeemer Amarillo, I bear you greetings, and I'm so grateful to be able to spend this time um, with you today. Uh, today is actually my fourth time that I've been able to preach the Word of God to this congregation. Uh, the first time I, I preached to Redeemer Midland, uh, you were only a few weeks old. And so it's been a wonderful thing to be able to, to witness just the way that God has moved in and through this congregation, um, in and through this city. Um, it's, it's extraordinary, really. And I just want you to know um, that you being a part of this church, you're a part of a miracle, um, something that the Lord has done in this place. You're such a blessing um, to the city of Midland and, and beyond in this region. You're such a blessing to uh, Redeemer Network, the Redeemer Network of churches, and uh, you're quite literally um, an answered prayer. I, I praise God for your existence. Um, uh, my friend, Pastor Jason Hatch, uh, reached out to me uh, a while ago and said that he wanted to invite me to be a part of your, your first Peter series. I, I said that I would love to be able to be so. I didn't know that he was going to be out of town. When I found he was going to be out of town, I assumed that he was hunting something. And my suspicions were confirmed to be true um, this morning as I discovered where he was. And so I'm grateful that he gets to take some time away. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to serve you all this morning. As I said, we're going to be picking up in your journey through the book of 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles or a smartphone, I invite you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. And I'm going to begin a scripture reading today. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through verse 10. The Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's holy word. One of the most enduring questions that the church has asked over centuries, ever since the church was born, is how the church should relate with culture. And I think in an election year, this question tends to come to the surface. It tends to come to the surface with a lot of passion, with a lot of angst. Should the church essentially be against culture? 
Should we seek to retreat from culture and see ourselves in a more adversarial relationship with the surrounding culture? Or should we be able to celebrate the good and the beauty in culture and and try to strategically find places and areas where we can strategically ally ourselves with the culture that is around us? Should we seek to transform culture? Should we seek to actually take over culture? In many ways, those questions are at the very heart of this letter that we now call 1 Peter. 1 Peter, of course, is written by the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, if you will. And he's teaching Christians, a generation of believers, a relatively recent generation of believers, how to live faithfully as God's people in a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe the message of 1 Peter is so vitally important for Christians today because many Christians today in modern America are finding themselves in a place of tension with culture. And probably you've felt this before. Maybe you have sensed in growing years that Christianity is oftentimes so misunderstood by many in outside culture. Sometimes Christianity is even increasingly mistrusted or even maligned by those in outside culture. It's in this place of social estrangement that Peter encourages his readers by reminding them that they are to see themselves as elect exiles, right? Elect. They are chosen and beloved by God. They are God's special people, set apart, beloved by him. But they are also exiles because we do live in a world that is not our own. We, we live in Nations that are not our primary citizenship. We, we live in places that, that cannot have our highest allegiance because our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. So in the last few weeks as you've been going through chapter one, a, a lot of that chapter really is about hope-inspired holiness, how we're to be holy and set apart as God's people. But here in chapter two, Peter is gonna begin to make somewhat of a, a turn And saying, as God's holy people, how then shall we engage the culture that is around us? And when it comes to Christians engaging the culture, I think there are two major postures that we can go wrong with this. One mistake is that we can attempt to essentially conquer culture. We view it as our sacred task to basically take control of the culture. We try to force the gospel onto people by any means necessary. And so you can maybe think of the, the extremes like the medieval era where many times people were actually converted at a literal sword point. In modern times, we might see something more akin to a culture war. In culture war mentality, Christians seek to essentially seize the levers of power and enforce Christian values through the power of the state. And while we should certainly vote with Christian convictions and elections, and we should participate as citizens in the political process, we must also realize that the power of political force is not really the power that transforms human hearts, is it? Politics can be good. Politics is even necessary for the working of a civil society, but politics can't save us. Only Jesus can save us. And at their very best, politics are are but a flawed coping mechanism to live in and navigate a fallen world. 
The second mistake, the second posture that we can fall into, is the exact opposite of the first. Instead of trying to conquer culture, many Christians and even Christian denominations allow themselves to essentially be conquered by culture. You see this when the church bows itself to the preferences and the pressures of the powers that are around us in broader culture. Oftentimes there's a a temptation that can be present within Christian culture of trying to recast a version of Jesus that we think the surrounding culture would find more palatable, more agreeable. And like a new version of the golden calf, we essentially amount to deifying aspects of culture and placing Jesus' name on it. No, that's not a good way either. See, the New Testament is going to offer to us a completely different strategy for cultural engagement. And what is that strategy? What is the primary cultural strategy of the New Testament? Well, it's very simple. It is the local church itself. As Stanley Hauerwas and William Williman write in their book, Resident Aliens, the church doesn't have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. It's a profound statement. I want to spend some time today unpacking what that means, because essentially the church itself is designed to engage broader culture by embodying a foretaste, a sample, a living example of the kingdom of God that is purposefully and intentionally different from the surrounding culture. Essentially, the church is most culturally effective when it's most faithfully representing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In our passage today, I believe that we see essentially three different postures that the church must embrace in order to faithfully represent the kingdom of God and to effectively engage culture. And those postures are is that we have to engage culture, number one, with a pure love. Number two, with a prophetic identity. And number three, a priestly mission. So point number one, uh, engaging culture with a pure love. Chapter two begins with a list of things that we are to avoid and put away. But chapter two also begins with the word, therefore. And this is just a rule of biblical interpretation 101. Whenever there is a therefore in scripture, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? What's the rationale that it's trying to be based on? And in this case, Peter is continuing a line of thought that he established in chapter 1. Specifically, he's putting skin on the idea of what it means for Christians to love one another with a sincere love and a pure heart. Let's take a look back at the command again in chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's reminding Christians that in order to engage culture, we must create within the church a counterculture of sincere brotherly love that flows from a pure heart. And that 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 culture that is within the church should begin to radiate and even overflow onto the culture that is surrounding us. And so how might we define this sincere love that flows from a pure heart? Well, a pure heart seeks and wills the highest good of another instead of being motivated by mere self-interest. And a sincere love from a pure heart is willing to put action to that desire. 
According to Peter, pure love does not come from us simply trying hard to be nice people by virtue of our own willpower. No, our pure love derives from the living and abiding word of God, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. Simply said, Christians love one another because we understand that God first loved us. And so that should change the way that we live. And it means, according to Peter, that we must put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. See, a sincere love means that we have to put away certain vices that might be normative in the culture around us. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So let's for a brief moment unpack each of these because I think there's a lot of temptation to exercise these exact vices in this exact cultural moment. Malice means mean-spirited, combative, or a vicious attitude. It's a disposition of conflict that presumes that other people are automatically foes to contend with instead of neighbors to love. Think about for a moment just how maybe the forces of media around us cause us to think of one another in oftentimes adversarial ways. Deceit is to simply speak words that are untrue. Sometimes we are tempted to say untrue things intentionally, but in a season like this, in a season like elections and political polarization, people can awful unintentionally say untrue things or maybe share untrue things online because it confirms an already established bias of what they want to be true or what we fear might be true. I think that we must be so discerning that we have to be a people that actually care about the truth and contend for the truth and weigh our words to speak what is true. Hypocrisy, of course, is simply to wear a mask. That's what the word literally means, is a mask wearer. Hypocrisy is when there's this obvious disconnect between what we say we believe and what our actions convey. Hypocrisy is when people see in the lives of Christians the the same worldliness the same self-interest, the same outrage and fear and divisiveness that animates and drives so much of the rest of the world. Envy, obviously, it, confer, it refers to this capacity of jealousy about one another, and it's a judgmental comparison of one another. It's the refusal to celebrate the good of another's life because you feel that another person, maybe your cultural enemy, experiencing a good is somehow a diminishment of you. It's a bitter attitude of entitlement, resentment that robs us of the capacity to experience joy. Slander, of course, is the practice of speaking ill about one another, and it assumes the worst about another person's motives. It convinces us to engage in acts like defamation, evil words, and gossip. Our world is filled with so much slander right now, and we have an opportunity to be something different. You see, Peter's telling us that these five vices, this list, should be actively banished. It should be put away from the people of God. Instead, that the church should be defined by service, sincerity, sacrifice, mutual encouragement, honesty, and rejoicing in one another. That's the culture that we have the ability to embody to the rest of the watching world. Remember a few years ago, there was a Dallas police officer who mistakenly shot and killed a man named Botham Jean. She 
was going into her apartment building. She thought she was in her apartment. She ended up being in another man's apartment on the wrong floor. And she, in her fear, shot this man who was just simply living in his own apartment. And this was a really tense cultural moment, if you remember. Unbelievably uh, a polarized trial that, that came to the surface. And as the trial was beginning to heat up, so many in culture were, were saying words of slander and malice and all the vices that we just read about in First Peter. At the conclusion of this officer's trial, Botham John's younger brother took the stand. His name was Brant, and he did something that utterly astounded the world. He publicly forgave his brother's murderer and asked for permission to hug her. And then before the watching world, when he did this, he made an explicit connection between the pure love of Jesus Christ and the sympathy that was due to this woman that he had every right to hate. And he showed the watching world something different, something that the world had not seen before. And for this brief moment, an outraged, polarized, vengeance-driven world was awestruck in silence for the power of amazing grace. See, what this Christian believed was directly and visibly connected to how this one Christian lived his life. You see, without love, we are simply pretenders. We cannot wear the mask of Christ, but be no different than the world underneath that mask. No, love is the essence of who we're called to be. Love is the truest mark of being a disciple of Jesus. And through true, earnest, loving community, we can offer to the world a taste of the coming kingdom of God. As Eugene Peterson once wrote, the church of Jesus Christ is designed to be a colony of heaven in the land of death. Point number two, we're to engage our culture with a prophetic identity. Peter wants Christians to embrace a prophetic identity as God's people. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, prophetic and prophecy is one of those words that's really easy to misunderstand because we use that word in common language in a, in a way that's a little bit different from how the Bible uses it. Unfortunately, many people immediately equate the term prophetic with future predictor. And it's true that the Old Testament prophets oftentimes did make predictions in their prophetic messages about what was to come and to take place, but that's not the essential function of an Old Testament prophet. See, in the Old Testament, a prophet was merely one person who was commissioned by God to speak forth his word. Sometimes that involved making proclamations about the future, but not all of the time. The essence of a prophet was to be a representative of God in which that prophet was sent and to the world in which that prophet was sent. And so several individuals were prophets, people like Samuel and Isaiah, who we just read from in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Daniel. But what many people don't realize is that the entire nation of Israel was also meant to play a prophetic role among the nations that surrounded Israel. The people of Israel were to be a light that shined in the darkness, representatives of God. And so God also says through the prophet Isaiah, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach 
the ends of the earth. You see the prophetic aspect of Israel's call? And the apostle Peter is saying to the church, this is how you're to see your identity, your role, your place in this world. You are to be a prophetic people. And so when you look at some of the language that Peter uses in chapter 2, he describes Christians as those who are invited to come and draw near to God. They are living stones of God's spiritual house. They are chosen. They are precious. They are a holy nation. They are the possession of God Almighty. And shockingly, all of these categories that were once exclusively reserved for the ancient nation of Israel are now applied to all believers who place their faith in Jesus. Like ancient Israel, we, the church of the living God, we are called to be prophetic in the world around us. You see, while the ancient prophets like Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah had immense privilege of representing God and declaring his words, they were often also rejected. They were at times alienated from the culture that was around them. And again, we even see that sense of annihilation happen in the very ministry of Jesus Christ. So likewise, even though Christians are immensely valuable and precious in the sight of God, they have been and they will be oftentimes rejected by many in society. So we have to set our expectations accordingly. Like the prophets of old, our expectations should be that we will be rejected by men in the sight of God, but that we're also chosen and precious. What I want you to see is that throughout history, throughout the majority of history, the church of Jesus Christ has not really meant and been designed to be a moral majority that controls the world. Instead, we are called to be a prophetic minority. Oftentimes we'll be outside the center of power but from that place of the from that place of being outside, we can speak truth to the center. We can speak truth to power. That means that we shouldn't expect society to reward us for being good Christians. In fact, to live for Christ will oftentimes cost us something. Again, as verse five says, to follow Jesus means that we're going to have to make spiritual sacrifices. In the New Testament, sacrifices include service financial giving in support of the ministry of the gospel and the church, singing praise and even suffering rejection for one's faithfulness to Jesus. And rejection is a big deal because right now many in our society measure our worth on whether or not people think highly or lowly of us. By embracing a prophetic identity, we can endure temporary shame from society, but resting in the eternal honor that belongs to those who believe in Jesus. Over a decade ago, I remember taking part in a pastor's conference. It was a pastor's training event that happened in Lubbock, Texas. And there was this church planning pastor who came to us. He had planted a church in New York City and he was training us. He was, he was telling us about his experiences planting in, in such a hyper-secularized context. And he warned us that much of American society was heading in this direction that New York was already experiencing. He talked about the increasing harshness of public dialogue and how much pressure that there was on the church to conform to the surrounding culture or else. And then he said a statement that I've found profoundly memorable and helpful. He says, honor or shame. You get one now and the other later. 
But the one you choose for later is yours forever. That's how prophets think. If we choose shame now, we will receive the honor of Christ for eternity. Our ultimate sense of worth must not derive from how society views us or values us, but rather from how Christ will ultimately vindicate us. And that leads us to our third and final point today, our priestly mission. Let's take a closer look at verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Christians should also see their mission through this lens of priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest was someone who essentially mediated a relationship between God and man. And in this way, priests have a dual type of ministry. Priests are engaged in the world in which they live, but they're also very holy and set apart unto God. And so, in this way, an ancient high priest would represent man to God. He would pray. He would make sacrifices. So, too, Christians are called to actively be engaged in praying for the suffering of this world. We should pray for justice where there is injustice. We should pray for peace wherever there is war. We should pray for healing where there is sickness. We should pray for integrity where there is corruption. We should even pray for the salvation and the redemption of those who would be our enemy, those who would hate us. You see, priests also represented God to man. This means that we should also seek to provide a haven of health and healing for those who've been wounded by the power of sin in this world. Our job is to, to give witness to the kingdom that is coming. And the world, I believe, is very weary of hypocritical Christians who make hateful moral judgments, but they are also at the same time aching to feel the healing touch of Jesus' power. And that can be displayed in and through the church. That doesn't mean that Christians should ever shy away from the truth of God. No, it is our job to proclaim God's truth. But it does mean that our truth-telling words should always be saturated with a pure and sincere love. To put some skin on this, um, I think if we're to view ourselves as a truly priestly people, that means that it's not just enough to oppose something like abortion. And I do believe that Christians should oppose something like abortion. We also must tangibly provide love and support for single moms. We must advocate for adoption and fostering. And I know that that's something that is a work that the Lord has done in this place in particular. That Redeemer Midland is a church that has advocated and, and been able to cultivate and build a culture that celebrates and champions fostering and adoption. It's when we do things like that, that we are creating a culture that values the image of God and, and the, the holiness, the sacredness of human life from womb all the way to the tomb. Similarly, it's not just enough to clearly proclaim and verbally teach biblical ethics regarding sexuality and marriage. We must also love those who have been abused, those who have suffered divorce, those who have been deeply wounded by sexual sin. We must counsel 
wounded marriages and equip people for marriage. That's why I love that you're doing a marriage conference. Because here's the thing. I think we should contend for the sanctity of marriage in our society. But do you know where that begins? That begins within the people of God. That begins with the people of Jesus Christ embodying marriages that reflect to a watching world that which is true and good and beautiful. That matters. For Christians are now part of a new kingdom. We are now allegiant to a new race that's not united by blood, or at least not the blood of our ancestors, right? Because we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, as God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, God has now redeemed all who believe in Jesus from the slavery of sin. I want you to know that. that right now, if you feel enslaved to sin, if you feel like you don't belong anywhere, that Christ has purchased for you through his actions, not your actions, redemption and freedom. And that because Christ has purchased you, he has not just saved you as a mere individual, he has purchased you so that you could be brought into a family, a people to which you belong. Can't do anything to earn it or deserve it, but you can receive it as a gift with the empty hands of faith. We are people who've been redeemed by grace. And now we are called to live our lives in such a way that give glory to our Redeemer. The church of Jesus Christ is seen as the continuation and the expansion of the people of God. And as Jesus taught us, he says this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you, people of God, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, what we believe to be true about God must be reflected in our lives to the watching world. Christians commend and give credibility to the gospel when our lives line up with the gospel. But in the same way, when our lives are filled with compromise, hypocrisy, we dishonor the truth of the gospel that we claim to believe. You might say, well, the Bible is offensive. Jesus is called a stumbling block to unbelievers, and that's true. But I simply want to point out that there's a very real and important distinction between the truth of the gospel causing an offense and simply you causing an offense, right? We have to see that distinction. People are going to stumble. Let them stumble over Jesus. Not our arrogance, not our hypocrisy. We are to be a distinct people, a holy people, that show the world a way of life that is only possible because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And so in the midst of an, an age of anxiety and darkness, we are to shine like lights in the world. Again, as Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon have written, Christianity is an invitation to be in a part of an alien people who make a difference because they see something that cannot otherwise be seen without Christ. 
We effectively engage culture with a pure love, a prophetic identity, a priestly mission. But you see, if you notice, Peter isn't really offering some type of new, radically unseen strategy. He's simply describing what he personally witnessed in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The church, after all, is the body of Christ, filled with the spirit of Christ, continuing the mission of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, Jesus Christ is the ultimate form of cultural engagement. He comes from heaven and glory to a broken world. He's the one who comes to love us with a true and pure love, even unto death on a cross. He's the one who is the prophetic stone that was rejected by men, but by the power of God has been made the ultimate living stone, the cornerstone of God's true and better temple. He is the perfect priest who not only spoke the truth of God's word, but also shared the compassion of God's love by healing the sick, feeding the hungry, by befriending the rejected. He is the perfect sacrifice that atones for all sins and makes us clean and makes us whole. He's the one who entered into our brokenness that we might be made new. One day very soon, he will return and make all things new. So Redeemer, Church of Midland, may you display Jesus' coming kingdom by being a people who love one another sincerely with a pure heart in such a way the rest of this community can't help but notice. May you rest that At times, you may suffer rejection for your faithful witness to the truth of God, but knowing that you are a chosen people, precious in the sight of God. And may you embrace your priestly mission that you may display the excellencies of the one who is our great high priest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, Lord, I thank you so much for this church, for this people. I thank you for your word that you've spoken to us today. That this church has been chosen for this time and this moment, that you have sent them to this place. And Lord, I pray that as we have been able to taste and see your goodness, that your Holy Spirit would bear within us your spiritual fruit. So that when the world sees us, that when the world sees your people, when the world sees this church, they would taste of your goodness. That those who do not yet believe would be drawn to you. Lord, thank you that you are building up a church right now. And not not only are you building a literal building for this people to inhabit, but that these people, your people, are living stones of a building that will last into eternity. May your spirit inhabit them and surround them and fill them with your presence and power. May they go forth into this watching world as emissaries and ambassadors of your kingdom that is to come. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.